Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and as we head into Christmas, I pray that you might find hope as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. In this week's message, we will be diving into Psalm 89, which reflects on the eternal promises of God to David's house and the tension of faith the psalmist experiences as he tries to hold together these forever promises and the demise of the monarchy. The Bible reading today is from Psalm 89, 1-4 and 19-26. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil, I anoint him. With my hand, I will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and Through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father, my God, my rock, my saviour. Well, here we are on the 20th of December. It is the final Sunday of Advent, the final Sunday before Christmas. And we are going to be continuing our series, Songs of Hope, looking at the reading from the Psalms from the lectionary readings. And as I've said before, I think there's something quite profound about the fact that today, uh, as we are reflecting on Psalm 89, that there will be tens of millions of believers around the planet uh, who will be reflecting on the same passage. Uh, It's something quite profound to think that we're part of something so big, a movement uh, that is found in every nation, in every corner of the globe. Uh, And today, these readings kind of draw us together as we reflect again on what these passages mean for us uh, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus and also look forward then to his second coming. Psalm 89 is quite a long psalm, as you may have picked up. It's 52 verses long, so we're not going to deal with it verse by verse. In fact, we're going to look at just kind of a couple of chunks through it, trying to give you the overall movement within the psalm uh, before we reflect on, I think, a really important practice for us as we lead up to Christmas. There's two things I want to let you know, though, about the psalm before we look at it. Uh, The first of them is that this psalm reflects on two of the most significant historical events in the history of the people of Israel. 
These are events that the people of Israel reflected on again and again and again. They weighed heavily on the, uh, the national identity. They were uh, continually being returned to, provided language that helped the people describe their circumstances and their situations and their relationship with God. To some degree, these two events are a little bit like for us in Australia, Captain Cook's landing at Botany and the events that took place at Gallipoli. I mean, those two events weigh really heavily on our national identity, don't they? And we continue to come back to them again and again and again. And more recently, of course, we've been reinterpreting what Captain Cook's landing kind of means for us now. But the event itself continues to be a central feature of who we are, how we describe ourselves, part of our story. And this psalm reflects on two really critical events. The first of them is the the promises of God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, These promises given to King David were that God would establish his reign and his rule forever. And and these uh, these promises are reflected on again and again and again and form the, the backbone, the spine, shall we say, of Psalm 89. The other event is the exile. The exile of the people of Israel, the time, the period of time when they were removed from the land that God had promised them, where the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins, where the temple of the Lord had been burnt down, where the palace of the king had been destroyed and the king and the people removed. And as you can imagine, I mean, that has economic and political and social and cultural implications. But for the people of Israel, it had a primarily theological significance. Uh, What did they do with the promises of God to them? What did they do with the covenant that they had been in? Where was God in that chaos? And so the exile became a really significant event for the people to reflect again on their relationship with God, to reflect again on their national identity, to consider who they were and what it meant to be the Lord's people. And it's these two uh, major events that the psalm reflects on and kind of pulls together and and considers uh, from the perspective of the people themselves. So let's have a bit of a look at this psalm. Uh, uh, The the psalm as a whole begins by reflecting on the great promises of God, the foreverness of God, and linking those very, very strongly to the foreverness of his promises to David. So just have a look at the first uh, four verses. You see these things kind of held together. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness, known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And these two ideas, the the reign and rule of God, the forever reign and rule of God, and the forever reign of David and his descendants as promised by God are held together in the psalm as almost inseparable. It's, it's almost as if you cannot have one without the other. 
Now, suppose theologically we would say that God can reign and rule uh, regardless of what happens to David and his descendants. But the psalmist is not, is not reflecting on this theologically so much as he is reflecting on this from the experiential side. He's considering the, the promises of God that were so firm to David that he holds them together as inseparable. And this is what creates the, the tension in the psalm. Because while the psalm opens with this reflection upon the promises of God, these, uh, this, this lengthy declaration of God's greatness and, and a recounting of the promises that he made to David, this psalm is ultimately a lament. Because the promises that God had made to David stand in stark contrast to what has happened in the exile. And, and this creates the tension, but it's a long time coming. The next 30 verses or so, from verse 5 down to verse 37, um, compares and holds side by side who God is and his promises to David. And he links them together very, very significantly. Verses 5 to 8 describes God as being seated above and beyond all heavenly beings. And we might see, you see the words holy ones or heavenly beings, but for the people of Israel, this might have been a reflection that God stands above all the gods of the other nations, that in the assembly of the divine, whoever that might be, it is the Lord who stands above all. Verses 9 through 13 describes God's greatness in creation. And again, it seems that the psalmist is drawing on some of the, uh, the popular mythology of the surrounding nations. Uh, many of the surrounding nations spoke about the creation of the world as the consequence of divine combat, uh, that the gods fought amongst each other, and it was the champion who arrived at the end who ends up creating the world out of the, the bodies of those he has slain. It's quite gruesome and very, very different than what we find in Genesis 1 where the Lord speaks alone, where there is none to contradict him, there is no one to enter into conflict with. He simply speaks, and it is, and it is good. And so while the psalmist is no doubt aware of the Genesis 1 story, the, the, the Genesis 1 reality, here he takes some of the wider mythology and says, you know what, in all of these ways, God has, has, has won the day. His kingship is revealed in how he has, as it says, for instance, in verse 9, in how he rules over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. And Rahab here is a a reference to the great sea creatures. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. So the psalmist de depicts God as above and beyond anything else in creation. And in fact, the one who rules over creation. But then look and see in verse 14. Because God's reign and rule is not based on power alone. As one commentator said, if it were based on power alone, it would be tyranny. But verse 14 tells us that the foundation of God's throne, the foundation of his reign is righteousness and justice, that his ambassadors are love and faithfulness. The same love and faithfulness that the psalmist has opened with by saying that they are forever. And then the psalm shifts gears. It moves from the exalted status of God and his um, ruling over the earth 
uh, to the king that he has anointed. And there's a parallel in terms of the thought process. There's a parallel between the two of them, that God has established his king to kind of function as a representation on earth of God's reign in heaven. So have a, a quick little look, if you have a, a look at verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have raised up a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. And then listen to the language of exaltation. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. Verse 23, in similar language to verse 10, right? I will crush his foes as the Lord crushed Rahab. Strike down his adversaries. My faithful love, the foundation of my reign will be with him. And through my name, his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers, just as the Lord reigns over the seas, the surging and raging seas. This is the picture that the psalmist paints. The Lord reigns forever. He is greater than anyone, every, anywhere, no matter where you might travel, no matter what gods you hear about. It is the Lord who stands exalted above them all. And that greatness is represented in the created order and also then in his establishment of his king. The, the king, the, the king of David's line is to some degree the, that's kind of the Old Testament equivalent of may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The, the Davidic king was the representation of God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. So God's reign in heaven is manifested in the reign of David and his descendants on the earth. And, and the author continues to reflect on the words of these promises. Many of the words uh, that you find in verses 27 through to 37 are reflections and almost direct quotes and allusions to 2 Samuel 7 and other places where these uh, great promises are included. This is, is how the psalm opens, reflecting on these incredible promises of God, uh, the, the theological, practical, lived reality of the anointed one of God reigning in Jerusalem. But it's here then that the discrepancy is, in, is encountered. Have a look in verse 38. Because here's where the psalm turns from a reflection of, of praise, uh, an announcement and declaration of God's greatness, to the realization that the way things are don't line up at all. In language that's reminiscent of the exile, listen to what the author says. But you, and notice that this is all, faced, this is all placed at the feet of God. This is all placed at the feet of God. These are his actions. But you, Lord, have rejected... You have spurned. You've been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls, reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. 
Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. I don't know what you want to say about the Psalms, but they certainly don't hold back, do they? And this is, it's a really, I think it's a, it's a fascinating reflection of, 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 of bringing a complaint, bringing um, the, 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 the circumstances of our lives before God. Because notice that the psalmist nowhere talks about the sin of the kings. If you, if you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, it becomes very, very clear that often the, the rejection of God, of his anointed ones, was related to their disobedience, their breaking of the covenant. But the author says absolutely nothing about that. As far as the author is concerned, the great tension here, right? Because in, in, in uh, verse uh, in verse uh, 30 and 31 and 32, he talks about the fact that if the sons of David disobey, that he will still not take his love from them. And so the author's concern is not with whether the kings deserved it, whether or not they were idolatrous, whether or not they had been faithful. The question is really the, 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 the theological problem that God exalted above all who rules over creation, had established his earthly reign in David, and now that reign is over. And it calls into question the reign of God and the greatness of God. This is the discrepancy. And the Psalms face this like front on. There's, there's no hiding from this. There's no skirting around the edges. There's no pretending that this isn't actually as bad as it is. No, this is really bad. And they place full responsibility at the feet of God. You promised. You promised, and now this has happened. You have done this. What gives? And there's something I think really powerful about these sorts of psalms. These, these reflections where the psalmist uh, holds, to, holds together as best he can the promises of God and the reality that he faces. And, and, and the gap between those, the intersection between those, the seam between those is really where faith is lived out. Because it's in those moments, it's in those places where there's discrepancy that people of faith have to decide which side of the coin that they're going to live as their reality. Are they going to assume that God has not been strong enough or wise enough or faithful enough to the king and walk away? Or will they assume that the promises stand regardless of what they are experiencing and live their life as though those promises continue to be at work? This, this is the space, the place where faith grows and is strengthened. And what we find in the psalm is ultimately two cries that are cries of faith. If you have a look in verse 46, here's the first one. It is simply this, how long, Lord? How long? How long is it going to take before your promises come to pass? The, the psalmist reminds the Lord how fleeting his own days are, that he does not, he is running out of time. He doesn't have eternity to wait. How long, O oh Lord? But notice that that's actually a cry of faith. It's a cry that assumes that God's promises are still active. 
The question is not whether or not God is going to be faithful. The question is when. And then in verse 50, the second cry of faith. Remember, Lord. Remember. And again, in the Old Testament, to remember is not simply to recall to mind, but it is to act. And when the Lord remembers his people, he acts on their behalf. So in the early part of Exodus, the Lord hears their cries and he remembers his promises. And it's not as if God had forgotten and had kind of uh, misplaced the people of Israel and only then remembered where they were. No, it was when he remembered that he acted on them. When the the ark is floating above the mountains uh, in the flood, it is in the middle of the narrative that God remembered Noah and the waters began to recede as God begins to bring them under control. When God remembers, he acts. And so here the cry is for the Lord to remember, to act, to, to show us your faithfulness. This is the, is the statement, the place of faith. And it's full of ambiguity. It's full of doubt. It's not certain. <laughs> it's the place of faith. But the two cries, how long, Lord, and remember, are, are critical. And I think for us as believers in Jesus, as we look at this psalm, I think we have a little bit more information, don't we? Because we see in the birth of Jesus, the anointed one of God who will always be under the love and blessing of God, who nonetheless was rejected and spurned and mocked, not because God was weak, but because it was part of God's plan. And yet, as we look at the world this Christmas, do we have any less discrepancy than the psalmist did? We know that Jesus has come. We celebrate his coming. We know what he has done in part, but we are waiting for the full consummation. And so these two cries of faith are appropriate on our lips the week before Christmas. And so I would like to encourage you this week to make these cries of faith your prayer. To begin your prayers with two statements. How long, Lord? And list before him, how long will you put up with our folly? How long will you put up with us destroying your created good? How long will you put up with our hatred and our injustice, naming the discrepancies? I think that one of the great strengths of the gospel is we can look the trouble of our world square in the eye. We can face it front on. And I think that's really powerful. But then also to pray, remember, Lord, to call on the Lord to act in particular specific circumstances. And the psalm ends, I I think, in a profound way. The psalmist finishes with these words, praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. In the midst of the discrepancy, In the seam between the promises and the reality, the psalmist firmly lands on the side of faith. He is going to live, he has chosen to live as someone who believes in the promises of God. And so cries out, how long? And cries out, remember, but ultimately makes his life a life of praise. To praise the Lord who is forever, whose promises are forever, he seeks to praise the Lord forever.
Let us make this psalm the basis of our prayer leading up to Christmas this year. How long? Remember and praise the name of the Lord forever. Amen and amen. While the precise nature of our tension may be different from that described in Psalm 89, we too face the discrepancy where faith and hope meet contrary experience. Even though we celebrate the birth of Jesus and all it means for us, we still cry, how long, and remember. These cries of the faithful are cries of hope, declaring that we will allow the promises of God to define our reality. I trust you will have a hope-filled Christmas, celebrating the first coming of our Lord and crying out for His return, when all His promises will be fulfilled. Merry Christmas. We are continuing to meet online at gbconline.org.au, but are shifting to a single morning service at 9.30 a.m. from next Sunday, with an evening service for the next two Sundays, the 27th and the 3rd. We'd love for you to join us. Until then, God bless.